Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Hi everybody, welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. And today I'm joined by Dan Whiting. I'll introduce him again in a second when we start that section of the show. But we talk about iconic moments since about 1980, basically, on English soil in test matches. What are the biggest moments? What are the best memories that we both have of cricket on these shores? And the purpose is an association with goldhanger.co.uk. They're going to provide eight prints cricket badgers special edition prints of those moments so stay tuned to the show you'll hear what those moments are we pick seven as we go through subsequently i've added in botham's ashes 1981 and if you visit goldhanger.co.uk you will see how you can buy them decently priced really nice prints and fill your boots look good on anybody's wall but myself and dan we will go through those iconic moments as i'm staring out the window as i'm talking to you now it's absolutely chucking it down with rain. It's grey skies. It's getting pretty autumnal, if not wintry, in England right now. The cricket season feels like it's a lifetime ago. What a summer that we've had. I can't wait to start watching the matches in New Zealand when England get going again. And bring on the spring. Please bring it on. But you can rest assured that on the Cricket Badger podcast, every week we'll bring you cricket. Remind you of sunnier times as we chat to various guests over the winter months. Right at the end of the show today, you'll hear from Mojo Wellington. He's a an opponent of the 100, and he's written a poem, which you'll read out at the end of this show. Good poem, and uh, a good cause, I would suggest. I don't want to try and get the Cricket Badger podcast too much down that route, because my views are well publicised elsewhere on the 100 being introduced by the ECB next year. But Mojo got in touch. He read his poem out, and uh, it's worth listening to at the end of this Cricket Badger podcast. But without further ado, let's stretch our minds back as far back as 1980. Let's have a think about test matches played on these shores. What are your favourite moments of test match cricket in this country? Well, myself and Dan Whiting, we pick ours. It's that Badger style. He's on Twitter too, at The Middle Stump. He's an alternative cricket writer, creator of the Doosra of blogs, he says on his Twitter bio. The musings of Dan Whiting, author, writer and radio commentator, ambassador also for Melanoma UK. Dan, welcome. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be on board. And uh, we are doing something a little bit different this week on the Cricket Badger podcast because of something I'm doing with the goalhanger.co.uk. They produce some rather nice sporting prints. We are at Cricket Badger going to have our own range of iconic moments in cricket chosen by the Badger because myself and Dan, we're going to bring up three iconic moments of our own as we go through this podcast. 
and thegoalhanger.co.uk will produce those and make them sellable to Cricket Badger listeners. And Dan, we've been thinking about what our iconic moments are going to be. I'm going to let you, as I'm a gentleman, I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, I, I expect nothing less, James. Well, let's firstly, I mean, for me, growing up, I was a huge, huge David Gower fan. I was, he was my hero. His poster was on my bedroom wall. You know, he became England captain. Nothing sort of resonates more with my childhood than Gower's glorious summer back in the summer of 85. You know, it was, uh, Madonna was in the charts with Into the Groove, but it was Lord Gower who was into the groove that summer, let me tell you. He was just wonderful wasn't he? I mean, the Australians were a little bit weak. But it was the first Ashes series since the iconic 81 summer. Uh, it was in those days where the Ashes weren't sort of over-commercialised and they you know, only came here every sort of four years back then, didn't they? It was just a wonderful, wonderful summer and uh, it started off with uh, a draw, I think it was at Trent Bridge. And then we lost at Lords, didn't we? we Bob Holland span us out. It was about six million years old, I think, the leg spinner. <laughs> and uh, they were a little bit weak. They'd had sort of South African issues didn't they? They had a rebel tour to South Africa and they'd had, obviously, the Packer sort of guys, but Dennis Liddy had sort of come back and uh, he was a little bit old at the time, but uh, he was back in their side. So it was Gower's knock, I think, at um, Trent Bridge, which was the real glorious one. I mean, you think of Gower's, you know, cover drives and his, you know, languid flicks off his legs, etc. And uh, he was absolutely wonderful. He got a 166 at Trent Bridge and it was just beautiful to watch. He never hit the ball that hard it was just pure timing and uh, you know if you look at bats now uh, you know they're, they're sort of big chunky things aren't they but back then his grey nickels uh, scoop you know was had more meat on a jockey's whip I think you know so uh, uh, and he, he just timed everything he timed it all and the ball sped away just as quickly to the boundary he got that beautiful 166 at Trent Bridge and then he went to Edgbaston and got uh, a double hundred got a 215 but I think it was the 166 was an even better knock and, he was just yeah. Very, very graceful, wasn't he, as a, as a batsman? And he was somebody I used to like to watch as well because, yeah, that summer, as I remember it, it was quite a nice summer, wasn't it? It was decent weather. I had uh, Dan Norcross on the podcast the other day and we were talking about um, David Gower's batting because he was one of Dan's heroes when he was younger as well. And I remember being on a family holiday. I was in the back of a car, got my dad to put a test match special on and we stopped for a picnic, I think, and I was listening to David Gower and Mike Gatting putting up on one of their fantastic stands in that 1985 series. But he was captain as well, wasn't he? He was somebody who didn't really seem to wilt under the captaincy that summer. He kind of led from the front, really, I guess, is the, is the phrase, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he wilted a little bit later, didn't he, against the 89 yeah. Australians. But uh, I've, I've also discussed this with Dan Norcross, but in the in the confines of a seedy backstreet pub in London when I did the old test match sofa back in the day. He likes seedy pubs, did Dan Norcross, I think. Oh, he's a big fan of seedy pubs, as am I. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we get on well. We get on well. Yeah, I mean, you know, that Gower knock was, at, you know, the Gower summer was absolutely brilliant and it culminated at the Oval where you know I think we were 2-1 up going into it and uh, Graham Gooch got a 196 and Gower got a 157 in that it was just the the sort of polar opposites of batsmanship both brilliant in their own rights but Gooch you know bashing it with his cudgel Gower wafting it with his wand and it was just beautiful to watch and uh, there's nothing like seeing an Australian side put to the sword is there yeah that that team was it was a good team wasn't it in the in the mid 80s yeah you know, Gooch was a, a phenomenal opener you had Gatting he was little and squat but punchy some really good players and that's so obviously even both of them in the side as well yes it, it maybe kind of glistens a little bit because of the age I was at the time but very fond memories of that era yeah, you had both of them in there, and you also had like people like Richard Ellison, who uh, swung the ball around corners at the time, and uh, used to sort of come in off a curved run with his ginger moustache bristling, you know, and uh, uh, another mustachioed man of that era was Les Taylor, do you remember him? He was in the side, he was uh, a coal miner from Leicestershire, and yeah, yeah. Uh, famously, he played in the same side as Gower, and famously, um, they played at some wicket on an outground somewhere, I can't remember where it was, I think it was, uh, I've got a feeling it might be Colville or somewhere like that, and the wicket was a little bit spicy and uh, Gower declared 
uh, when they were about sort of 20 or behind just because he thought Les Taylor was going to get killed. I think it's Malcolm Marshall was there for Hampshire. And Coward declared early because he thought Les Taylor was going to get killed. The wicket was that naughty. And Les Taylor was that much of a... Well, he was a ferret, wasn't he? He wasn't even a rabbit. He used to go in after the rabbits as a batsman. Yeah, Coward declared early on it. But Les Taylor got into that side. And I think Les Taylor actually took the final wicket at the Oval for us to win the Ashes. I remember Richard Allison very well because I, I watched a lot of my early cricket down in Kent and Richard Allison was very good for Kent. And when, when you follow a county, you're always quite pleased to see your heroes getting selected for England. And I was actually down at the Canterbury Festival that August and it kept coming over the tannoy. Ellison's got another wicket. Ellison's now got a fifer. Ellison, yeah. And he just kept seemed to take wickets left, right and centre. I think the fourth and t- fifth test match for Richard Allison's test match is yeah, a, a terrific series and a, I think a really good nomination that one to start us off. Yeah, I mean Ellison uh, I think he went through the Aussies in one evening session. I think we've got loads and I think Goward got his 2-1-5 and then both of them came in and whacked, can't remember who it was, was it Alderman perhaps, back over his head for six, first ball, which was unheard of in Test cricket back in those days. You know, people rarely hit sixes. I mean, remember this is, you know, just after the era of sort of Tavaray and people like that, you know. Bolton's come in, whacked a six, we declared, and then Ellison's just gone through their top order. And the main man for the Australians is Alan Border. And once he got him out, the rest just folded. And, uh, yeah, Ellison was, was a, a huge, huge part of that series. The Cricket Badger podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com. They're ethos. We love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. David Gower starts us off then as we search for the iconic moments in modern test cricket. All of these, I think, are in England as well, so uh, that's the criteria. Modern test cricket, iconic moments on English soil. I'm going to take us right back to the very near history um, because my first nomination is Ben Stokes at Headingley, the ginger ninja from Durham silenced all of the Australians at Headingley just by doing what he does best out in the middle showed a lot of composure showed a lot of class and showed a a huge amount of skill as well I think in taking England to what seemed like an impossible victory at one stage when Jack Leach joined him in the middle to start that famous now 10th wicket partnership still needed over 70 runs to win that test match but Ben Stokes basically said to Jack Leach, I'll take five and over, you take one if you can, and we'll see how close we can get. And there's so many different kind of like little snippets inside that innings that will stay with me for a long, long time. Obviously, it's fresh in the memory now, but obviously Nathan Lyon, the run out right at the end where he didn't collect the ball cleanly and could have had Jack Leach well short of his ground backing up. There was the LBW shouts and they'd used all their reviews and used their last review on a ridiculous one that pitched about 10 miles outside leg stump and was never going to be given out. There was that reverse slog sweep that Ben Stokes played into the West Stand. And it was probably around that time where you actually started thinking, they're going to do this. They're actually going to going to do this because when they turned up that morning seven wickets still in hand with 200 or so to get on that final day it was pretty much in the balance but then England lost wickets fairly steadily all the way through that fourth day at Headingley and then Ben Stokes he just stayed there and I think what I found really impressive about Ben Stokes during that knock was that it was almost like a play within three acts the first act was on the third evening when he had no intention of getting out he batted for just over 60 balls he was two not out I think overnight and he just shut up shop he said right Australia if you're going to get me out it's going to be tomorrow because I'm booking in for tomorrow morning and then when he arrived there back with Joe Root at the crease on that fourth morning they started off quite circumspectly he lost Joe Root reasonably early then Johnny Bairstow came in and provided a little bit of impetus into the innings and Ben Stokes was jolted a little bit by that he started to play a few more attacking shots one six into the uh, the west stand as well fairly early on on day four and then it wasn't until Joffre Archer and Jack Leach were with him right at the end of that knock where he opened his shoulders he opened his eyes wide and he started to belt the ball towards Bradford you had 
Tim Payne, the Australian captain, setting the field to try and deny him the boundaries. Wherever he put the field, he hit it over their heads. And Jack Leach did what Jack Leach does best. He just, well, as the name suggests, he just clung on and uh, sucked the blood from the Australian team that day. And then that final ball, which was short outside the off stump, Ben Stokes steps back cracks it through cover before raises his arms to the crowd. The crowd stand. There's that famous side-on little video that Sky have done where you see Stokes' arms go up, you see Nathan Lyon collapse in a heap, and then the crowd realise a split second later what's just happened, and they stand to a man on the west stand behind the triumph of Ben Stokes. Jack Leach comes into frame and hugs him, and it was just one of the most phenomenal pieces of cricket, and a couple of hours of cricket I think I've seen I watched it on television and it was just mesmerising. I couldn't take my eyes off it at all. And as I say, we'll live long, long, long into the memory. It was fantastic, wasn't it? I think it was the best knock I've ever, ever seen in Test match cricket. And I've been, you know, I've been watching Test match cricket since the mid seventies, and uh, it was wonderful. And Stokes has been—he's been like the vicar, isn't he? He's been going to work on Sundays in this summer of 2019. He did it in the World Cup final, and then he did it at Lords on the Sunday as well. And uh, he, he sort of, you know, he preached to 28,000 at Lord's at the parish of St. John's Wood and then took his Sunday sermon up to Headingley as well, didn't he? And, uh, yeah, delivered delivered there from the pulpit. And it was an absolutely brilliant knock. I, I just can't imagine ever being remotely capable of playing in innings like that. I mean, I was a, a fairly bog-standard club cricketer, but, you know, even... As a kid, when you stand in front of the bedroom mirror and you've got your new bat in your hand that you just got for Christmas and you start to make the clicking noises as you, as you play it around your bedroom for fours and sixes, that was Ben Stokes in reality, in the flesh, doing it in the context of that game as well because not only was he playing for his country and not only was he trying to get England across the line to win a test match that they looked like they were going to lose, if he got out at any stage, that was the Ashes gone as well. The Ashes urn was on the line all the way through Ben Stokes' knock. You know, the pressure, the context, the atmosphere that was in that ground that day it just makes it a very, very special moment for me. Yeah, I've, I've just got visions of you playing a full defensive in front of your mirror, James, actually. But uh, there you go. And, and it, would, it would come right um, off the middle and it would have a beautiful click to it. The little, <laughs> the little click you always make when you, when you shadow bat in that little sound as it speeds away off your bat, that full defensive right off the middle of the bat, right back towards the mirror. Fantastic. Yeah, well, I actually saw a guy at the station a few years back on the way into work, actually, on a train shadow batting. And uh, it's amazing how everyone's shadow bats are forward defensive, don't they? They never shadow bat a leave or a massive hoik to leg, do they? But there you go. Was it, was it Stephen Smith on the, on the train station? Well, it may have been. It may have been, <laughs> yeah. Your feedback to the Cricket Budget podcast is much appreciated. Cricket Budget at hotmail.com fancy sending us an email send us a tweet at cricket underscore badger and make sure you follow that twitter feed too we've got plenty of great guests planned over the coming weeks make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing do it now 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 i tell you that takes us on then that's two in the bag we're going to go on to the third choice then so it's back across to you Dom. yeah i want to talk about the west indies team of the uh, mid 80s and uh, Ooh, yeah. Uh, what a side, hey! What an absolute side they were, and they were they were brutal. I mean, what happened? I mean, I'm sure everyone's seen the uh, documentary Fire in Babylon, which is absolutely fantastic, and I'd recommend everyone to have a watch of it because it actually takes people through the sort of political history of the West Indies as well. What you had, you had Australia absolutely battering people. I mean, they absolutely mullered us, didn't they, on the '74 '75 tour with you know Tomo and Lily and uh, those guys, and uh, they sort of blasted us out. Of, out of uh, out of the game really and uh, what happened was the West Indies then thought well I'm going to have a little bit of that and they came here in 76 and uh, you know they, they were good you know Vivi got a brilliant 291 at the Oval which was just absolute world class and I think Michael Holding took was it 14 or 15 16 wickets in that game as well but it wasn't until sort of they, they got better and better throughout that era and uh, it was the 84 tour here which was, um, you know, absolutely just, they were at their peak then. They had Malcolm Marshall, who, for my mind, is the best bowler I've ever, ever seen, you know, under Clive Lloyd. And the thing to remember about the West Indies as well is they're not uh, one nation. They're a load of islands with a lot of politics going on, a lot of sort of, you know, inter-island rivalry. And Clive Lloyd held that side together. And they, they set out their stall in the first test. Edgbaston, half an hour of the game, 
Malcolm Marshall's bounced Andy Lloyd and uh, well, he's finished his career, isn't he? He's hit him on the side of the head and uh, you know put him out of the series. But interestingly, if you look up Wikipedia, you know we all remember Andy Lloyd being a, a five foot eight blonde brummy. It said he's no relation of Clive, which uh, <laughs> considering Clive's six foot five and from Georgetown, I thought it was rather ironic. Yeah, it was a fantastic team they brought over then, wasn't it? And yeah, Vivrich is one of my all-time heroes. You trained, aren't you, as an Englishman? Because we we got beaten left, right and centre by the West Indies too. Try and dislike them in the same way we try and dislike the Australians in the Ashes series. But you just can't help at times just to sit back and just think, this is just legendary cricket that we're watching unfold in front of our very eyes that you know as you say Michael Marshall I was lucky enough to be in Barbados about 18 months ago and I got a taxi back to the airport when my trip sadly finished and I wasn't too keen to get back to the airport but the taxi driver that took me he, he rabbited on like nobody's business and it's one of my biggest regrets actually not to stick a dictaphone underneath his nose and actually make it a cricket budget podcast all of its own because he was telling me as we went through all about Malcolm Marshall everything about it we passed the church where he was buried and you know passed everything and he every time he went around the corner that was something to do with Malcolm Marshall and he was amazing and he just was wasn't he the, the grace that he, he ran in and that was one of the things with the West Indies fast bowlers that Michael Holding and Malcolm Marshall in particular they almost crept in but then they just unleashed hell. They were incredible bowlers. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken to Mike Gatting and I sort of asked him who the best he faced and uh, he said Malcolm Marshall, um, although Malcolm Marshall did rearrange his nose that time a couple of years after the 84 series. But uh, going back to your point about the West Indies, they love their cricket, the people out there, and uh, so I'd actually, you know, gave them, it was more than just cricket, wasn't it? It was, they actually sort of gave those those islanders, um, you know, a focus and, uh, you know, something, something to be proud of. You know, the people out there are, are very proud people and, and they're, they're good people and uh, you know I mean I've been out there and just sort of sat around the beach with a load of them and talk cricket and once you get past the you know England are crab England are going to give you licks and stuff like that they're actually very knowledgeable about their cricket so uh, but for me what really stands out about that series I mean I, I saw the one day series that year I bunked off school if any of my teachers are listening uh, please don't you know hassle me for it it was sort of 35 years ago now but I bunked off school and Viv was picking up Bob Willis for sixes into the mound stand at Lords just for fun and this was like England's premier bowler and you know you're thinking wow and he had a knock in that one day series as well where he got about 160 170 or no 180 I think it was wasn't it where him and Michael Holding put on loads for the last wicket at, I think it was Old Trafford and uh, Viv just found the strike and just absolutely monstered it everywhere for me I mean they had batting everywhere it wasn't just all about Viv uh, you look at Lords in that test David Gower gave them uh, you know a, a reasonable declaration and Gordon Greenwich came out on one leg he had a hamstring problem and just smashed it everywhere absolutely just smashed it everywhere and uh, it was a series known as Blackwash wasn't it you know they beat us 5-0 and Alan Lamb stood up for England he, he got sort of he got a few hundreds in that series Graham Fowler got a very good hundred at Lords as well against that side and uh, he uh, I did, did some commentary with him a few years ago and he said Joel Garner broke his box about 10 minutes before lunch and he said he was picking Ouch. bits of box out of his uh, out of his jockstrap for the, you know, whole lunch period. It smashed it into about 15 different parts. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they battered us, didn't they? And, uh, you know, Winston Davis uh, broke Paul Terry's arm. I think that was a heading lead later in the series. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they were... They were brilliant, but brutal as well. And another guy in that series as well, I mean, you know, you think of Greenwich and Haynes and Richards and Clive Lloyd and all those bats, but a guy who really just wouldn't give his wicket away, was like a barnacle, you couldn't prize him from the crease, was Larry Gomes. And uh, yeah. he, he got a few runs as well. And he was, wasn't great to watch, but he uh, he hung around. He was like a sort of, like Chanderpaw a little bit, you know, sort of not, not that great to watch, but, uh, you know, it's about runs in the book, isn't it? Hi, my name is Brian Lara, and you're listening to the Cricket Batcher podcast. We've got three rather good ones, I think, so far. We've got three yeah. rather good, iconic moments. I'm going to take us to something quite recent. Sir, as he is now, Alistair Cook. I could have gone back to so many different things, but I've chosen two very recent things. But I always like it when a sportsman departs on his own terms. You know, you see so many sportsmen who get injured or they're dropped, and they don't get the finale they deserve, their career deserves. And Shep, as he's known, 161 test matches, 12,472 runs, the most of any Englishman in test cricket, high score of 294, average mid-40s, 
wasn't the prettiest of batsmen. At times during his career, he came under quite a lot of stick as well because in, in many ways he was quite limited, but he knew his limitations and he knew how to score runs. And that is a quality I think we're only just starting, or a lot of people in England are only just starting to realise he's a rather good quality for an opening batsman to be able to hang around for a while and to accumulate runs is a big, big asset because we're seeing in recent times openers going left, right and centre, coming in, being tried and disappearing again because they just can't manage to step up to test match cricket. But Alistair Cook did it straight away when he came into that England side and made that place his own all the way through. Obviously had a good stint as captain as well. But the reason I'm picking him, the day that I'm picking him for, is his final century in Test cricket. Because, as I say, to go out in Test match cricket on your own terms, decide when to go, and then finish in style. Well, Alistair Cook did that. You know, that last Test match against India at the Oval in September 2018, when he went in, wasn't in the best of form, hadn't had the best of series, and he came off with his arms aloft, runs a century to his name. That was just special. 147, and finally caught behind off the bowling of Vihari for 147. He'd made 70-odd in the first innings as well. But the crowd stored, he walked off, and it was almost like not a dry eye in the house because everybody knew that you were seeing the departure of somebody that had given not just a lot of skill and not just a lot of tenacity at the top of the order, but he'd basically given his all to English cricket. As I say, it had not always been appreciated because he'd had a couple of bad runs in the team, but the stats don't lie, do they? Over a course of a career like Alistair Cook's, the stats do not lie. The volume of runs, the amount of centuries, the quality that he gave England at the top of the order was second to none. And that day at the Oval, I think, is one of the iconic moments of of recent times that this man that was right up there in terms of English cricketers of all time to walk off like that and to say his goodbyes in the way he did. It was almost typical of him. That that century that he scored, as I say, he wasn't in the best of form coming into that test match. Many people were calling for his head anyway. But to go out like he did and to show the tenacity and to battle through to get to three figures and then to go on and make it a, a big 100, 147, was something quite special to me. I think that was real testament to the... The quality of the man inside the cricketer, really, the the heart that he had, that he didn't want to give up and he wanted to go out in style and to go out with 147 to his name at the Oval at the end of a series was tremendous. Yeah, definitely. I mean, cricket is one of those games that uh, tugs at the heartstrings at times, doesn't it? And uh, you're right, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. You know, Cook, he started off with 100 for England. He finished off with 100 for England as well. And uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful way to finish off a career. For me, what, what's, what I really remember about that knock is the uh, the overthrow that got him to his 100. It was the second time at the Oval, because I saw him a few years ago against Pakistan. And again, he was out of knock. And that was the first out form sorry and uh it was it was the first time that i'd really sort of you know seen him out of form first time in his career that he was really sort of struggling for runs and he, he ground out a century guts it out i think it was against pakistan um probably about 2010 maybe 2000 uh, no probably 2011 2012 perhaps again he got to his hundred with an overthrow he's punched around back at the bowler the bowler's thrown it back at his head cook's weaved out of the way it's gone over the keeper's head for four runs yeah he seemed to like getting to his hundred with overthrows at the over see some of his England teammates interviewed afterwards they were were visibly emotional to to have lost a teammate knowing that he was going to retire and it shows you know not only had he given runs but he he was good in the dressing room he was admired by all of his colleagues as well and to see sort of Jimmy the likes of Jimmy Anderson who you know no mean cricketer in his own right but you know almost crying when he was giving a kind of a tribute to him after the game that was quite special as well. And I think the fact that he was batting with Joe Root when he got to his, his three figures, it was almost like he played a lot with Joe Root, but it was almost like he was passing the baton on there to the, the, the other quality batsman in the England side. You know, I'm going, it's now your turn to, you know, you're, you're captain already, it's now your turn to take it on. That, that was quite poignant as well, I think. But uh, Alice Cook, absolute legend, and will go down in history. I think when people look back in... 50 or 100 years, his, his name will be mentioned with a lot of respect, you know, as we do a lot of the players from yesteryear. And I think he's he's deserved that because he, he put a lot into that England side. And to go out like that, as I say, I think that 
deserves to be mentioned when we talk about iconic moments in, in cricket. Without doubt, without doubt. And uh, you're right, and he, he's been knight, you know, he's got his knighthood, and uh, he will go down. He'll go down and sort of, well, at the moment he's the leading run scorer. He's broken so many records, isn't he, for England? And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's one of those, uh, he's a fantastic player. He's, he's, as you said, he's not great to watch, but uh, he hung around. You know, we'd love him now in this series, I'll tell you. Well, I was going to say, John, you know, it, it, you hear people talk about Alistair Cook, and, and they're right, you know, he had three or four shots, and, you know, that square cut that he played, you know, the clip off his legs, he occasionally unfilled a, a pull shot or a hook shot, and then, you know, he punched down the ground straight, and that was Alistair Cook, and he knew when to use the shots, he knew when to, you know, rein himself in and just be dogged and determined and to leave alone, he knew exactly where his off stump was, and we're crying out for somebody like him now, aren't we? You know, we lost... Strauss, we couldn't replace him and alongside Alistair Cook, and now we've lost Alistair Cook as well. And you, know, you, you only really truly understand how good something is when it's gone. And Alistair Cook is right up there in terms of uh, you know of greatness, in my opinion, in, in that England side. And you know, Rory Burns, he's trying his best, and we're now trying Joe Denley and, and Jason Roy. That is his time and he's gone back down to the middle order and, and possibly might uh, disappear from that England side but you know if, if somebody could fashion a career as a, a solid dependable run scoring opener there is a slot there for them and Alistair Cook had filled that for so long yep without a shadow of a doubt Discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa Located on the south coast of Barbados, this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars, an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities, and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream. Let's move on to number five then, Dan. Before, before I do, I've cheated a little bit because my number six that will come is actually two things. The one I told you, I, I was torn and I've, I'm going to mention both. So if you want to uh, do your number five if there's anything else that comes to mind, you can always spring it off the back of this as well. So I, you don't think you've been cheated in terms of choices. But uh, give us your number five third. Yeah, my number five. Um, it's the best series of all time, uh, I think, in, in sort of not just my mind, but a lot of, uh, a lot of cricketing cognoscenti have uh, all said that it's a wonderful, wonderful series. And that's the 2005 Ashes. I mean, what a series. Australia arrived. They were at the peak of their powers. I mean, we just spoke about the West Indies in sort of 84. And, you know, at the time, they were probably the best side that ever walked on the cricket pitch. But they were usurped by the Australian side in uh, the sort of late, you know, early 2000s. And um, uh, they came over here under Ricky Ponting and uh, they went home without the ashes, didn't they? And it was just a wonderful, wonderful series. I mean, it started off at Lords with uh, Steve Harmison hitting Justin Langer, I think, second, third ball. Um, putting a massive lump on his elbow. He then hit Ricky Ponting on the head, cut him. Not one English bloke went to say, are you all right, mate, or anything like that. It was war out there. And uh, although we lost that, that game, uh, you know, we'd set our stall out. And Michael Vaughan uh, skippered England very well. He wouldn't take any prisons. And um, uh, we moved on to Edgbaston. And, uh, you know, Edgbaston was... Uh, it's, it's England's rock, isn't it? It's England's sort of hotbed of support. And it's, it's our favourite ground, really. And uh, it started very well with us with Glenn McGrath tre treading on a ball at half past nine in the morning doing a warm-up. And then it went even better when Ricky Ponting won the toss and said, you guys can have a bat. And we put on 400 on the first day. And uh, everyone just everyone went out there and, uh, and gave it some humpty, really. And uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful test. And then it was all set up with them needing, what, about 90-odd to win. Shane trodden the stumps. Uh, suddenly they just got down and down and down, didn't they? And it was Brett Lee and Kasparovich. And then uh, Simon Jones dropped a catch with about 10 to win. And everyone thought, oh, no. That's it. It's, it's game over. And uh, that famous, famous ball from Steve Harmison to Kasprovich where he's bounced him. He's gloved it down the leg side and Geraint Jones, tumbling forward, took a fine catch. And Billy Bounden 
uh, crooked finger went up and uh, you know it was one all in the series I went to quite a lot of that Ashley series and I was at Trent Bridge and I remember Ashley Giles and Matthew Hoggard batting I, it, I think England was set about 137 or something around that to, yeah. to win that test match and I, I can remember very clearly I was there with a friend of mine and the, the couple of the father and son sat in front of me they said oh we might as well go home now this is going to be comfortable for England and I just looked at my friend and I just said they have no idea have they because <laughs> when you've got the likes of Shane Warne certainly you know in the fourth innings of a test match bowling at you and the rest of the Australian bowling lineup that was never going to be comfortable I remember Triscothic came out and hit a few fours to start with and got us off to a good start but wickets just kept falling and I couldn't sit still. I, you know, the runs required kept coming down, but the wickets kept falling. And it was only when that the final winning runs were hit that you could relax. And that was what that series was like all the way through, wasn't it? There were so many moments. I mean, England could quite easily have lost that series comfortably. But there were just the occasional sort of 50-50 moment in that series where it just came down on England's side. That was, the, that was the same test match as well where Gary Pratt ran out Ricky Ponting, wasn't it? Where, which caused a bit of a furore and certainly upset the Australian captain. Unbeknown to him, Simon Jones hadn't gone off just to have a shower. He'd gone off because he'd actually really hurt himself. Ricky, Ricky Ponting walking off and chuntering at Duncan Fletcher and then going to confront Duncan Fletcher. But certain flashpoints, certain moments all the way through that series that just make it special. Yeah, Punter didn't like it, did he? Um, but yeah, that was a fantastic test at uh, Trembridge. And Shane Warne, I think he got 40 wickets in that series, didn't he? Which is, you know, that's outrageous for an Ashes series, yeah. for a five-test series. It's, you know, it's different league. Um, but yeah, it was, it was the unlikely pairing of Ashley Giles and Matthew Hoggard there at the end. And uh, uh, Warney nearly won it for the Aussies on his own. There's the one before that as well at Old Trafford where Simon Jones bowled beautifully. Michael Vaughan batted very well, got 100. And uh, the Aussies had to save it on the last day, yeah. And Ricky Ponting got an absolutely brilliant century. And then was out yeah. just before the end. And then we had one over, didn't we, to uh, to remove their last pair. And, um, you know, it was a full house at Old Trafford. I mean, I think there was about 15,000 locked out on the fifth day. which Again, unheard of. It was unprecedented, wasn't it? I, I remember um, yeah, Michael Vaughan was supposed to have said, yeah, look at the Australians celebrating a draw. You know, the kind of momentum had changed, hasn't it? The Australians were clinging on rather than soundly thrashing his yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, I think, that, in a way, that I think that Old Trafford test changed the series, you know, because it was one all going into that, and, you know, it, it's been one all before, I mean, we won, I think, 97, we won the first test at Edgbaston, and we've got off to good starts in Ashes, but I think it was sort of, you know, it was one all, and all of a sudden then, you know, we're in the ascendancy, and the momentum was with us, and momentum's crucial in a, in a test series, and, uh, you know, they clung on for a draw, and then we won at Nottingham, and then we went to the Oval for the last test. And obviously, we got through all of this far without mentioning a certain Kevin Peterson, who had <laughs> come onto the international scene the previous winter, but that was his first home series. The Oval Test was where he really did come of age, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a bizarre test because, I mean, we started off very well. I think, did Strauss get 100 as well in the first innings? Started off very well. Um, and then they, they had a good partnership between Hayden Lang and, and bizarrely, they went off for light, didn't they? And uh, thinking, you know, it was back in the days when it wasn't down to the umpires. The umpires actually offered it back to the batsmen in those days, didn't they? Yeah, and they, they went off for light, which I thought was a bit odd. They took sort of some time out of the game. Then Flintoff bowled uh, an absolutely inspired spell, as he'd done so many times that summer. And... Uh, it was down to the last day. If we could bat out the last day, um, we'd we'd sort of win the Ashes for the first time since uh, 1986-87 under Mike Gatting. You know, the Aussies came over in 89, nicked them back off us, and they'd retained them ever since. So it's the first time that we'd had the Ashes in our hands for 16 years. But we had to bat out the last day to do it. And it was a, a Kevin Peterson knock, um, which, uh, you know, we were under pressure a little bit early. I think Brett Lee had an inspired spell early on. I think he got bell out for Nor and, uh, you know, you know, he, he, uh, he was bowling like the wind. He bowled, you know, at Kevin Peterson. Peterson was just hooking him off his nose, putting him into the gasometer at the Oval. And it was it was a wonderful, wonderful knock. It was 158. And he just, it just he took the game. And the longer he was at the crease, you could see the, you know, the blood visibly drain out the faces of the Aussies. And, uh, you know, they knew the game was up. And uh, Ashley Giles came in at the end and got like 30 or 40 and, and sort of, you know, managed to sort of take it even further away from them. And, uh, you know, finally the umpires came on uh, after a little spell for bad light again and uh, theatrically removed the bales and the ashes were ours. Ashley Giles was almost the unsung hero of that, uh, that series because he bowled so many important spells 
maybe not taking wickets, but keeping an end solid. And those runs he scored at the Oval just took all the worry away, didn't they? Because when he came in, if he got out straight away, then that, that was game on. And you could see Australia with Gilchrist, etc., just going out there and smashing the runs they required to win that game. I heard uh, Michael Vaughan the other day talking about that Kevin Peterson innings and he said he came in at lunchtime and he was sat there and he was looking a bit concerned because, as you said, Brad Lee was sticking up his nose and he was struggling and he'd nearly been out. Apparently Michael Vaughan said to him, what's, what's up, what's, what's wrong? He says, I'm not sure what to do. Because you know, I think Kevin Peterson had thought, you know, I need to be defensive here. We need to bat out. I need to get into that zone of being defensive. And, and Vaughan said to him, just go out there and play your natural game. Take it to him. And that's what he did that afternoon. Those, those shots, the hooks in the six, were something else, weren't they? And the crowd there was incredible. And as you said, people locked out the grounds, people hanging from trees to watch cricket. It was on the front pages and the back pages. And you know, for people that love cricket, it was a very, very special summer. It was. And, and you look at uh, the Australian side. I mean, that was an absolutely brilliant side. I mean, Hayden Langer, Ponting, Clark, Gilchrist, with the ball you had, Brett Lee, Glenn McGrath, Shane Warne. They just had quality right through the side, didn't they? And, and it was, you know, it, I think what was so good about it was we beat a very, very good side. You know, and it was it was in the Ashes series. You know, you see now, you know, if we beat this Australian side, yeah, I mean they're a decent side. They've got a decent attack, and obviously Steve Smith, etc. But it's not one of the all-time great Australian sides. That was an all-time great Australian side, which makes it even better in a way. Yeah, exactly. And and I think most of us, if we're honest, at the start of that series, even though England had been in good form, we were hoping that England were going to run them close rather than beat them, because that was. We, we, we trained ourselves to that, haven't we? We trained ourselves to being plucky losers at best. And for, for Michael Vaughan to lead that team the way he did and for them to step up and stick their chests out. And as you say, you know, that, that first game at Lords, you hear a lot of the Australians say that it was a different England because England were in their faces. Rather than being timid and almost expecting to lose, England were playing to win. Yeah, it was. It was. It was fantastic. And every game, every game was on a, a you know a cliffhanger, wasn't it? And it was. It was just. I thought. I mean, it was just the best series of all time. I still. I still got the DVD. I still watch it from time to time. And uh, so it's one of those just absolutely sort of brilliant series. And uh, yeah, I will. I'll continue to watch it till I'm an old man. <laughs> Yeah, I'm on free-to-air telly, so everybody can enjoy it. Fantastic stuff. <laughs> Some say I'm an old man already, but there you go. But uh, when I'm a real <laughs> geriatric man and I'm in my, you know, in my care home, I'll still have that DVD and I'll continue to watch that series. You just have nothing to play it on by then. Exactly. Well, I won't understand technology by then anyway, so, uh, <laughs> you know, there you go. The Cricket Budget Podcast Association with Cricket365 comes to an end at the end of October. So we're seeking a new headline sponsor. Thank you very much indeed to Cricket365 for their support of the podcast over the last year. This is a great opportunity for you to get your business in front of the cricket world. Be the headline sponsor on the Cricket Badger podcast. We'll promote you on here. We'll promote you on social media. And we're also planning to incorporate new videos onto the cricketbadgerpod.com website as well. And you'll be emblazoned all over those too. Fantastic opportunity to get your business in front of thousands of cricket fans. So let's get together, form a great relationship going ahead. We'll plug you and make sure the world knows about about you. Please check out cricketbadgerpod.com for further details. Let's move on then to my choice for the next one and the final choice of the podcast actually. I'm going to cheat and I'm going to go with two and I'm going to try and do both of them justice. They are both at Old Trafford and they are three years apart and we'll start with the first one because there was a certain young man called Sachin Tendulkar who people might have heard of. He went on to do rather good things in terms of his cricket career. But at this stage, he was only a, a youngster. He, he hadn't scored a test match century. And although people knew that he was a prodigious talent and potentially fantastic, this was the match where he got to three figures at Old Trafford in 1990. He'd uh, scored runs in the, in the first innings. He'd got uh, 68. But in the second innings, he walked off unbeaten. It was a drawn game. So the game itself, yeah, no, nothing incredible to write home about, but he was batting at number six in the order at that stage for India, and he scored 119 not out off 189 balls, 17 fours. From there on, 
I think it was around about his 16th test match. They'd, they'd persevered with him because they knew he was fantastic. But this is where he became a man, effectively, on the test match stage. Scored his first century, and then the rest is history, isn't it? You know, the, the guy goes on and does incredible things from there on. 200 test matches, tops the record charts for, for pretty much everything. He scored over 15,000 runs, averaged over 50. Look at his ODIs, look at his T20s, look at his first-class record. The man was an absolute genius, Sachin Tendulkar. And that was Old Trafford 1990 was where he put his flag in the sand and said, right, that's my first century. He went on to score another 50 hundreds in Test Match cricket after that. But I'm sure if you asked him, that would be one of the most important because that was the first. You need to get the first to, to get the rest of them, don't you? And he was a, a terrific player arguably one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest of all time, certainly in the modern era. So Sachin Tendulkar's first century at Old Trafford in 1990, yeah, that goes uh, down as my, my six and a half choice. Okay, yeah, I remember that. I remember that, and it was a great knock. I remember he used to have these big like, polystyrene pads back in the day, didn't he? And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, regular, you know, it's not only runs he got, but he'd get regularly four-leg buys off his pads as well, wouldn't he, to add to the team total. But I also remember, I think, the first test of that series as well and I saw, I went to two days of that played in that one as well at Lord and it was famous for a Graham Gooch one he, I saw him get 196 of his 333 that day and then I went to the I think it was the fourth day and Eddie Hemmings he cost me a fiver that day because I had a little bet with my mate and uh, we I think they needed 24 to save to follow on I bet my mate that they wouldn't get it. Capital Dev was there. They had one wicket to go. Capital Dev was there. Eddie Hemmings bowling to him, and Capital Dev slonged him for four sixes in a row. Saved the five. Oh, I remember that, yeah. five <laughs> Sachin Tendulkar, that was 17 in that summer. So he was a kid. I mean, I don't know what everybody else listening to this was doing when they were 17, but I certainly wasn't scoring centuries at Old Trafford playing uh, for my country. And you know, he'd, he'd been around a little bit before that as well I mean a couple of years later he was uh, Yorkshire's first overseas player for a, for a summer um, and the little master he announced himself at Old Trafford in 1990 and went on to be I would imagine that if you're listening in India he's your favourite player I mean you've got choices haven't you you've got MS Dhoni you've got Virat Kohli but Sachin Tendulkar he's loved by everybody in India and that was the start of his uh, rise to stardom basically 1990 a terrific terrific player he became Yep, definitely, definitely, and he's, he's up there. You know, I mean, people talk about him and Bradman ahead of all others in the game, and, uh, you know, there's, there's no better sort of accolade, is there? The other choice for me is another overseas. I thought we can't... English soil's fine, but, you know, there's been some fantastic performances by overseas players. So Tindalka's the first pick, and the second pick is how Shane Warne announced himself to the English audience. He came on, and I remember the commentary, Richie Benno, obviously a, a former great, um, Australian leg spinner knew the art respected Shane Warne he would have been full of expectation and hope that Shane Warne's first spell was probably going to be on the cut strip and he was going to do himself justice but Mike Gatting on strike it became known as the the ball of the century it looked like it was going to go miles down the leg side and Gatting using his pads obviously can't be out LBW if the ball pitches outside the leg stump thought he got it covered Gatting not an inconsiderable beast so you know have quite a bit in between himself and the stumps. But that ball pitched, it turned, it span, it ripped, and it darted from outside Gatting's leg stump, took the off bail. Only, I think, Ian Healy and Shane Warne and probably the umpire and the, and the watching audience could actually really comprehend what had happened because I think the rest of the Australian fielders played catch-up through the rest of the day as they tried to understand what had happened there. But I think it's the best ball I've ever seen bowled. And, and to do that with your first ball, to give it that much of a rip with your first ball, just announces yourself as not only being prodigiously talented, but hugely confident, as we've seen since. You know, he went on to be the greatest spinner with Murali of all time. But to announce yourself like that, and Gatting's face as well, you know, the theatre of cricket and those moments that you remember, Gatting just looking back up and just looking down at the pitch and looking at his stumps and thinking, how on earth did that get from there to there and beat me? Graham but, Gooch said, uh, it's like Gatting's face was like someone had nicked his lunch, wasn't it? It was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was just sort of, you know, an incredulous look, wasn't it? And it was like, what has just happened? What has just happened to me, you know? And it, it was just an 
amazing, amazing delivery. Uh, I've heard Ian Healy describe it, and he said that, obviously he was behind the stick, so he could see it coming down and fizzing off the surface, and he said, you know, Gatting's pad was just a little bit too late, his bat was just a little bit too late, and the ball just zipped through everything and took that off bail, and yeah, we, we know what Shane Warne's gone on to do. You know, Shane Warne's gone on to achieve ridiculous things in the game not just in test match cricket but in one day cricket and obviously in franchise cricket around the world as that took off but you, know, you, you don't announce yourself to the world yeah, we, we've seen Joffrey Archer come into the England side this year and do fantastic things we've seen great people do good things on debut Andrew Strauss got, got a century on his test debut so did Alistair Cook so quite a few people but to bowl that ball like he did and to say, here I am, I'm going to be around for a while, I'm going to take a shed load of wickets. That was just a ridiculous moment. And yeah, you'll always remember kind of Gatting crouched over his back, just, as you say, just incredulous. How did that just happen to me? It was just incredible theatre. Yeah, it made it made leg spinning sexy again, didn't it, as well? Because it was a dying art at the time. I mean, you had sort of, you know, Benno in the sort of 50s and 60s, etc. And then you had maybe Abdul Qadir came along in the sort of 70s yeah. and early 80s. But it was a dying art. I mean, you never saw a leg spinner in English cricket at all. You had Harry Latchman maybe at Middlesex in the sort of end of the 60s, early 70s. Uh, it was gone. And all of a sudden, Warnie's come along, bowled that ball, and you saw kids wanting to flip it out the back of the hand again you know and it was it was wonderful and uh, you know leg spin is is a beautiful thing it's one of the hardest things in the game to master a good leg spinner is is beautiful to watch it's it's like watching gower as we were talking about earlier and uh, it's an art isn't it leg spin and uh, all the kids were wanting to bowl leg spin again rather than trying to bowl quick as they were in the 80s having watched the west indies they were you know wanting to bowl leg spin and you know dyeing their hair blonde and uh, you know wearing earrings and uh, warning made that Warney made that, didn't he? And eating pizza. He went on to take 708 Test match wickets. and But yeah, th- that's got to be the most famous of his career. It was just a ridiculous delivery. And l- like you say, you know, it was a dying art. And in a way, I mean, these are genuine greats that we're talking about here. Tendulkar and, and Warn. Genuine greats right up there in all-time cricket. And in a way, they... You, you, you kind of have to almost pinch yourself sometimes when you're watching these guys, just to remember, kind of remind yourself how lucky you are to actually be seeing them either in the flesh or on your television and watching them live, because guys like that don't come around every day, do they? Shane Warne is a, a once in, not just a once in a lifetime cricketer, he's probably a once in a, a century kind of cricketer. He was that good. And he had the Chris Schofields and Yad Rashid of, of, in recent times, yeah. Everybody hunting for their own version of Shane Warne, and you're never going to find it. You know, Adam Rashid's a fine bowler, but he's never going to be as good as Shane Warne. Shane Warne is the best of of the best. And you know, Adam Gilchrist, who we mentioned when you were talking about the 2005 Ashes, he changed the the scene for wicketkeeper batsmen in Test matches, didn't he? You know, he's a very good wicketkeeper, but he could go out there and average over 50 in Test matches, and everybody around the world was suddenly trying to scrabble around to see if we could find a batsman that could put some gloves on and be their version of Adam Gilchrist. It's almost unfair, isn't it, that these guys are so good they burden everybody else who's trying to be as good as them. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, in a way, Warney was like a, he was a burglar, wasn't he? He was a bit of a con man, wasn't he? I mean, you wouldn't want to buy a used car off him. He, you know, he came out with these deliveries later on, like the Zooter and all stuff like that. And, you know, it was just sort of variations of, of leg spins or flippers or googlies, really, you know. And it was, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he was wonderful, wonderful to watch. And, uh, you know, he, just to sort of see him, you know, come on and uh, the strength in his fingers, I think, that's where it all came from I mean he had shoulder problems because leg spin comes from the shoulder and the fingers yeah I mean he had he had sort of finger and shoulder problems but uh, what what a, what a hero <laughs> you know there's only so many variations of leg spin you can actually bowl and he had a different one at the start of every single series and they were just the same delivery but named something different just to put the fear of God at the batsman yeah yeah he was uh, you know he'd say that sort of you know he'd been practicing this delivery or that delivery and uh, really it was a load of rubbish it was just to get in the heads of people but he did get into the heads of people and I think um, in a way if Warney hadn't had that ban in his career for the uh, the sort of the diuretic um, you know or the weight loss tablets etc I think he'd have been Australia's captain instead of uh, Ricky Ponting and I think he'd have probably been maybe a little bit more inventive as a captain than Ponting Ponting wasn't a bad captain he led from the front and he was a very good batsman um, but I think Warney would have been a lot more inventive and a lot more thoughtful perhaps 
about uh, about the game. You know, he had a very, very good cricketing brain along with the ability as well. And we might not have had your 2005 Ashes to have included in our <laughs> the iconic moments. I mean, you it never know. Think, you know. People come along and, and different. these moments change the course of the game, don't they? You never know quite what's going to happen. It's that butterfly effect. That warm delivery changed everything that was going to happen to spin bowlers for the next 20 years afterwards. It's that Badger style. We've got to the end of our list of six then, stroke seven if you include my cheating, and Alistair Cook's farewell turn, Ben Stokes' heroics, Gower's 85 Ashes, the West Indies team in 1984, those 2005 Ashes, that fantastic series, Sachin's first turn in test matches at Old Trafford, and Warren's ball of the century at Old Trafford as well. So seven nominations there, and then our friends at thegoalhanger.co.uk will create some cricket badger, iconic moments in international cricket prints, which you can buy and stick on your wall. Thank you very much, Dan, for joining me this week. Absolute pleasure, and uh, good luck with the podcast. It's been uh, it's been a wonderful time, and uh, I could sit here all night and just talk about this. Uh, I'm sure there's about another 15 we could run through if we wanted. But uh, no, absolutely. <laughs> well, we, we could do another one next week, Dan. We could do another one next week where we could do we could do numbers eight to 15 or something. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't, but uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for joining me, and thanks for your time, mate. No worries. Cheers, mate. It's that Badger style. Thank you to Dan for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed that chat. And reminder, you can get any of the prints that come from that chat at goalhanger.co.uk. All seven of the discussion points that we raised on this podcast have all got their own print. And we've added in the 81 Ashes, Botham's Ashes as well, to make it an eight series Cricket Badger special edition with goalhanger.co.uk. So pay them a visit. Have a look at their other stuff on the site as well. Some good stuff there available for you to hang on your walls well worth a trip goalhanger.co.uk as i promised you at the start of the show gonna play you out with mojo wellington his the hundred protest poem until next time badgers enjoy your cricket thank you for listening follow at cricket underscore badger on twitter wherever you listen to the show on whatever platform it's available on them all but whatever platform you listen to please give it five stars give it a nice rating share it with your friends Spread the word about the Cricket Badger podcast so we can keep going into the future. And until next week, Badgers, enjoy your cricket and I'll leave you with Mojo and his The Hundred protest poem. It's that Badger style. I oppose The Hundred for the simple fact professional cricket doesn't need another shortened format. With T20 and One Day already in existence, who decreed to proceed down the path of most resistance? There are ways to innovate and modernise the sport without the trashing of the existing band of travelling support. I oppose the 100, the assault on the county game. The ECB, ignoring fans, whatever they may claim. England won the Men's World Cup by the skin of their teeth. Failure to build on that success truly does defy belief. 50 over cricket, domestically downgraded, the World Cup barely lifted, while the counties are grifted and raided. I oppose the 100 and the scrapping of the Super League. Where's the planning for the future in this mindless, thoughtless blitzkrieg? Why is women's cricket being shoved into a corner with all the tact and diplomacy of a sledge from David Warner? I oppose the hundred and the patronising claim women and children cannot understand a complicated game. Cricket is convoluted, idiosyncratic in charm. The way to learn the game is by watching. Tell me, what is the harm of making the sport more attractive with tickets reasonably priced without a new competition where cricket is sliced and diced? I oppose the hundred and its tinkering of cricket laws. The MCC, a betting change it traditionally abhors. I oppose the hundred, feel as sick as a pig, seeing old players becoming lackeys in exchange for another gig. Hankering for the commentary box or a coaching role in one of the sides. All the while embracing a scheme that so openly derides existing fans faithful to their team for the sake of a new competition replete with garish colour scheme. I oppose the hundred 
each team with a stupid name and draft pick rules designed by fools that complicate the game. I oppose the hundred, for I can count to six. A five or ten ball strategy play is not a simple fix. I oppose the hundred, the money thrown in the air. After Alan Stanford, you think they take more care. The helicopter may have gone, but dear Prudence is still playing second fiddle to a political play where the pawns in the game are the players out in the middle. Cricket was taken off free-to-air for the big money from Sky. But as grassroots have dwindled, the ECB won't eat humble pie. Instead, they look at the franchised IPL and Big Bash. Heads have turned, 20 balls burned, by the allure of television cash. I oppose the hundred, a shameless rotten beast, despised across the land, from the southwest to the northeast. I oppose the hundred, for I truly fear the end of the county system is drawing ever near. I oppose the hundred and the vast expense. How will the hundred help a 50 over World Cup defense? I oppose the hundred and am deeply cynical. Administrators truly believe test cricket is the pinnacle. I oppose the hundred and all it represents. The ECB still ploughing on, despite all common sense. I oppose the hundred, most of all because the ECB and the powers that be don't care about the likes of us. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.